We read the Holy Scriptures this morning, 1 Corinthians 11. Going to begin reading at verse 17 to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For, first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you, When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. And one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Therefore, wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another, And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. On the basis of this passage of Scripture and many other passages of Scripture, it's the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 30. Question and answer 81. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving? 
and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread in that upper room in Jerusalem, and he broke it and gave thanks and instituted the Holy Supper in remembrance of him. For whom did the Lord institute the Lord's Supper? That's the question of our catechism in this Lord's Day. For whom did he institute the Lord's Supper? And the answer to that question, if you look at the narrative of the institution, is that he instituted it for his disciples. No one else was in that upper room but Jesus and his disciples. He instituted this supper as an exclusive meal of remembrance to be administered and partaken within the group of disciples within the church. Sometime later, the Lord Jesus, after he arose from the dead and ascended into heaven, appeared unto the apostle Paul and delivered to Paul what he had delivered to the other apostles. He delivered to Paul the mandate to administer this holy supper in remembrance of him. The apostle Paul then went on his missionary journeys and he delivered that mandate of the Lord's Supper to all the churches which he established on his missionary journeys, including the church at Corinth. The apostle had taught them what the Holy Supper of the Lord is, how it is to be administered, how it is to be partaken of. But then, sometime later, after he had left them and gone about doing other work, he received a very troubling report about things going on in the church at Corinth a report about many, many problems that were going on within this church, problems of division and hatred and envy and strife. And one of those problems had to do with the partaking of the Lord's Supper. He proceeds to address that particular matter in the passage that we just read. What was going on in the church at Corinth was this. When they came together as a congregation, they were not eating the Lord's Supper together, but they were dividing into separate groups. Can you imagine if right here in this room, there was a group of us up here who was sitting around these tables, feasting together, stuffing their faces with bread and meat and gulping down cups full of wine and laughing and rejoicing and having a wonderful time. But then over there in that corner of the church was another group of people, the poorer members of the church, and they didn't have enough money for a big loaf of bread and meat and bottles of wine, so they're sitting there with just a few crumbs, and they called that the Lord's Supper. There was division, there was schism, there was envy, there was bitterness, 
There was drunkenness. There was indulgence. There was great, great sin. And they were desecrating the Holy Supper of our Lord. The apostle was very disturbed at this report. And he wrote this epistle. And he said to them, shall I praise you for what's going on? I praise you not. Because when you come together as a congregation, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. He reminded them that what the Lord Jesus had given to him, he had also given to them, that is, the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Supper, which is sacred, which is holy, which is a meal of God with his covenant people. And he warns them in this epistle that anyone who eats and drinks that supper unworthily becomes guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. He warned the congregation at Corinth that if you eat and drink the Lord's Supper in that kind of a state, you bring down upon yourself the damnation and judgment of God. And he exhorted them, in light of all of those circumstances, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat and drink. That is, let a man examine himself personally. Don't examine everybody else in the congregation. Examine yourself. And in that way of self-examination, come and eat and drink the Lord's Supper. It's a holy supper. It's a sacred meal. So God in his providence arranged all of those circumstances in the church at Corinth so that this would be put into the sacred scriptures for our instruction. And the Heidelberg Catechism bases the instruction of this Lord's Day on what the Apostle writes, especially in this chapter. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? The Catechism tells us. For those who have a true sorrow for their sins. For those who have a true faith that all their sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ. And for those who have an earnest desire to grow spiritually. Let's consider together before we come to the Lord's Supper the worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper. Notice in the first place that penitent believers are welcomed to the Lord's Supper. Impenitent sinners are barred from the supper. And then let's notice the warning and the reality of eating and drinking judgment. Who is a worthy partaker of the Lord's Supper? Who? Who is worthy to come up here this morning to sit by these tables and to eat that bread and drink that wine? Are any of us worthy? As soon as we ask that question, we understand that the answer we must give, first of all, is no, none of us is worthy. None of us is a worthy partaker. None of us is worthy in ourselves to come up here and to sit down at the Lord's table and to have fellowship with God at his table. Not one of us. Rather, what we are worthy of is to be plunged into hell. What we are worthy of is damnation. 
What we're worthy of is the curse and wrath of God because of our sins. And that's all that we are worthy of in ourselves. But in the second place, we must answer that question this way. That although that is true, God makes worthy partakers out of such dreadful sinners as us. God does that. God makes worthy partakers out of all those sinners whom he has chosen in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, all those sinners for whom Jesus Christ gave his own body and shed his own blood on the cross to blot out all their transgressions, all those sinners whom the Lord Jesus Christ, through his Spirit, incorporates into himself so that we become worthy in Christ, in ourselves, unworthy, in Christ, worthy. Do you recall what was said about Christ when he ascended into heaven? And John looked around him, and he saw no one who was worthy to open the book of the seven seals. But it was said to him, Do not weep. There is one who is worthy. The Lamb who was slain on the cross. The Lamb who was triumphant. The Lamb who has arisen and ascended up into heaven. He is worthy. He is worthy. And all the hosts of heaven cried out, in glorious, triumphant song. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and blessing and honor and power forever and ever. There is one who is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And God makes us worthy in him, only in him. The apostle then exhorts us in this passage Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The question this morning that is put to you and to me is, are you a worthy partaker in Christ? When the apostle says, let a man examine himself, he is not saying, let us examine ourselves to see if we have done something, if we have accomplished something, if we are worthy in ourselves because we already know we're not. We will never find in ourselves any worthiness to come up to this table this morning. There is none. But the apostle is saying, let a man examine himself. Let a man look at himself in the light of the scriptures. Let a man look at himself in the light of the law and the gospel. Let a man look at himself closely inspecting his heart, closely scrutinizing what is in his soul closely looking at his life, his thought life, his speech, his behavior, to see if God has made him a worthy partaker of the supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way of self-examination, we come. There are three parts to that self-examination. The Lord's Supper form points out those three parts. The Heidelberg Catechism points out those three parts. Part one of the Catechism on our sins and miseries. Part two on our deliverance. Part three on our gratitude. All three of those parts are found right here in this Lord's Day as well. 
In what way do we come up to this supper? Not in the way of thinking that we are worthy in ourselves, but in this way, we examine our hearts, first of all, to see, do I have, has God worked in me, a true sorrow for my sin? God works true sorrow for sin in the hearts of his children. He doesn't work it in the hearts of unbelievers. There is such a thing as a fake sorrow for sin. There are people out in the world, and there are people even in the church world, who fake sorrow for sin. They fake it. They don't have true sorrow for sin. They aren't truly sorrowful over their sins. But they fake it. They pretend. They pretend to weep. They pretend to mourn. They pretend that they are sorrowful over their sin. Sometimes it is a complete fraud. Other times, what they are actually sorrowful over is the fact that they got caught in their sin. They got caught. They got exposed. Or what they are actually sorrowful is that they have to now suffer the consequences of their sin. And they don't like it because those consequences are painful. The Apostle Paul teaches in his other epistle to the Corinthians, that is not the godly sorrow that worketh repentance, That is the sorrow of the world that works death. That sorrow leads nowhere. That sorrow leads to death and to hell. Let a man examine himself. Let us inspect our hearts to see if God has worked in our hearts a true sorrow for our sins. True sorrow for sins means that I don't try to excuse my sins. I don't try to justify them. I don't try to minimize them. I don't try to blame someone else for them. I confess my sins. I confess them. I confess. I did that. I did that. We take ownership of it, responsibility for it. We admit, I did that. I had those evil thoughts towards my wife, towards my husband. I spoke those hateful words about my brother to his face or behind his back. I did those perverse things in the secret place of my house. I did those things. Maybe nobody knows what I think in my mind, what I desire in my soul. Maybe nobody knows the perverse things that I do in secret. But I know. True sorrow for sin means that we not only know and confess that we have done sinful things, that we are sinful people. But it means that we also recognize what that sin is, that it is disobedience to God. It's possible to confess sin. I sinned. I made a mistake. I did wrong. And we never even mention God. God is far from our thoughts. That's not confession either. True sorrow over sin is a recognition. I have sinned against God. God. I broke God's commandments. I displeased God. I provoked God to wrath and anger by what I did. Sometimes people can say, I sinned. I did something wrong. But they don't really recognize and admit the pain 
and the hurt that they have caused to other people by their sins. They don't recognize that they have hurt their neighbor by their sins. I made a mistake. No, you hurt that person. You killed that person with your words, with your thoughts, with your actions. That's true sorrow for sin. We recognize what we did was wrong. We sinned against God. We sinned against our neighbor. And as we examine ourselves, we also consider the fact that I am so unworthy of God's grace. I deserve to be punished. I'm a wretched sinner. I deserve the curse of God and nothing more. Like Peter, when he realized that he denied the Lord, he went out into the darkness of the night and wept bitter tears of repentance. Let a man examine himself and see, has God worked true sorrow for sin in my heart? There are sins of which we are ignorant. But the main point is, regarding the sins of which we are not ignorant, regarding the sins which we know very well that we commit, has God given to us a true, genuine sorrow? In the second place, let a man examine himself in order to see if God has worked in his heart a true faith. As the Catechism puts it, I not only mourn over my sins, but I also trust that all my sins are forgiven me for the sake of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a true faith. Once again, there is such a thing as false faith. We saw that last Sunday. There is a false faith. The question of self-examination is, has God given to me a true faith? A false faith might say that, I believe there's a God. I believe there is a Jesus. I believe even that Jesus is Christ. Jesus is the Savior. I even believe that Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He died for sinners. Someone might have a false faith and even say, the right things. I believe he died for the elect. You might say that. I believe that he died only for the elect. And it could still be a false faith. Let a man examine himself to see if God has worked in him a true faith. What is that? True faith means I not only have a certain knowledge of all these truths, but I also have an assured confidence that all these truths are true for me. That this God that I believe exists is my God. That this Jesus, who I believe exists, is my Jesus. He's my Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. When he died on that cross, he didn't just die for the elect. He died for me. I'm one of the elect. He died for me. He loved me. He gave himself for me. Even me. To wash away all of my sins and miseries, all of the wicked things that I have done. And I believe in him. In him. I trust in him. 
I cling to him and I embrace him. I hold on to him. I come there to the cross of my Jesus and I get down on my knees and I cling to that cross and I hold to that cross because I know that cross and that Jesus is my only hope. That I have no righteousness in myself. That's a true faith. Do you have that? Has God worked that in your heart? Then you don't come up to this table because you think you are worthy. You come up to this table because you know he is worthy. And you cling to him. Him. And that true faith means that you say, I can do nothing. I was reading a sermon this past week from my morning devotions. And the preacher from long ago quoted a hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. You know that old hymn? That's faith. I don't bring anything. In the third place, let a man examine himself. The Catechism teaches us to see if God has given to him an earnest desire to grow, a true sorrow for sin, a true faith in Christ, and an earnest desire to grow in Christ. You see, the only proper partaker of the Lord's Supper is the believer in Jesus Christ, because he alone is worthy in Christ. The true believer in Christ is a person who not only has faith in Christ, but he also recognizes the weakness of his faith. And so the Lord's Supper form makes very clear to us, this is not designed, dearly beloved, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful as if none may come to the supper those who are without sin. We don't testify when we come up to this table that we are without sin. No. We testify that we have much sin, great sin, In fact, we even testify the weakness of our faith. We don't come up here because we testify we are such strong believers. But as the form says, we have daily to struggle with the weakness of our faith. We daily struggle with it. We daily battle against doubts and fears. We daily battle against the inclination to trust in ourselves rather than Christ. But when we examine ourselves, we look to see, has God given to me an earnest desire to grow in my faith? Because the believer not only has faith, but he wants to grow in his faith. He wants to get rid of these doubts. He wants to get rid of these fears. He wants to get rid of this unbelief. He wants to get rid of this confidence in man and confidence in princes and confidence in governments and confidence in himself. He wants to believe and trust in God and Christ alone. That's what he wants. He wants to grow in faith. And he wants to grow in holiness. We don't come up to this supper to testify that we are holy and worthy because of our holiness. No, we testify that we are sinners and that God has given to us a desire to grow in holiness. 
James teaches in his epistle that a faith without works is dead, being alone. A faith that does not desire to grow in holiness is a dead faith. It's not faith. There's no such faith. That's a false faith. The faith of the child of God, that is a true faith, is a faith that produces the fruit, first of all, of the earnest desire to grow in holiness, and also (coughs) the fruit of good works. Not perfect works, but good works of thankfulness to God for all that he has done for us. A true faith produces that. So when we examine ourselves here, we're not looking to see whether we have performed the most amazing and astounding good works, as if that somehow proves something about us, but we're looking only for the earnest desire to grow. And in our second sermon this afternoon, we hope to look at the scriptures that teach us and call us to grow, how to grow in the Christian life. But in self-examination, we are asking ourselves, do I, do I earnestly, truly desire to grow? Or am I quite satisfied at my spiritual development? Have I attained? Have I plateaued? Do I believe that I'm good enough in terms of the Christian life? A true faith produces the earnest desire to grow. That earnest desire is always there until we die. The desire to grow. Are you a worthy partaker? You say to me, no, no, I'm not worthy. And I say to you, neither am I. But now I say to you again, Are you a worthy partaker in Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you trust in Christ? All who are thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. Those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts must abstain from the table. Very quickly and briefly this morning, first of all, there are hypocrites. There are impenitent sinners who must not come to the table. First of all, there are hypocrites and those who do not turn to God with a sincere heart. It's the catechism again. Hypocrites are people mixed into the church, just like in that parable of the wheat and the tares. There's the wheat and there are the tares. The hypocrites are tares in the wheat field who who don't have a true sorrow for sin. They're faking it. They don't have a true faith. They only say they have faith. They don't have an earnest desire to grow in their hearts. And we don't know who they are because we can't see their hearts. We know whether or not we are true believers. We don't know whether or not everyone else is. There are hypocrites. They hide their true thoughts and beliefs in their hearts and they masquerade as Christians. The warning has to go forth to any hypocrites 
who are found in the church, and I hope and pray there are none among us. I don't judge. I'm not suspicious. We are not to be that way towards one another. Nevertheless, we all know that there is always that possibility, and the warning has to go out. Do not come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ while you masquerade, while you pretend to be a Christian. And we'll see why in a moment. In the second place, there are those who do not turn to God with a sincere heart. They might be God's children, but at this particular moment in their life, they have a besetting sin in their heart, and they know it, but they refuse to repent of it. They're stubborn and obstinate in their sin. We have to distinguish that from the child of God who is struggling with a sin. He's struggling, he's fighting, battling against it. He hates it. He falls back into it. No, this is someone who is walking in a sin. Maybe nobody else knows. But he loves that sin. He treasures that sin. And God has not yet given to him a true sorrow over that sin. He's not yet sincere in turning and hating that sin. Now, as I said before, there are sins of ignorance that are below the threshold of our consciousness. That's another matter. But we're talking about those sins that we know very well. The Lord warns us, do not partake of the Lord's Supper in that state. Like the saints in Corinth. Many of those saints, some of them sitting up here with their friends around that table, indulging and gorging themselves with bread and wine, getting drunk and laughing, and then the poor over there. Paul wasn't saying that these were all reprobates. He was saying to them, examine yourselves. Don't come to the Lord's Supper like that. Repent. Come to Christ. Come with a sincere heart of sorrow over your sin. But the elders cannot do anything about hypocrites and those who are insincere because the elders don't know. However, the elders do have a duty according to the catechism. It is the duty of the Christian church through her elders to exclude from the Lord's Supper those who by their confession and life show themselves, declare themselves to be unbelieving and ungodly. That's a different matter. The elders must, as you like to say, fence the table, guard the table, exclude from the table those who declare themselves to be such. Now, the flip side of that is that the elders must admit to the table those who by their confession and life show themselves to be members in good standing. They show themselves to be believers. Those who, according to the church order, Article 61, have made a confession of the Reformed religion besides being reputed to be of a godly walk like the three young people who made public confession of their faith last Sunday, they made a confession of the Reformed religion in this church. And the elders now have to open up the doors to the table to them. 
They fence the table, but that fence has a gate, and the elders hold the keys to that gate, and the elders have to unlock it and open it so that those who are good members in good standing are able to come to the table. That implies that the little children of the church are not allowed into the table yet. The elders stand there by the fence with the gates shut, and if the little children come up to the table, the elders will say to them very gently and very tenderly, little children, you must wait. Be patient. You still have to learn. You still have to grow. The time will come when you will also make confession of your faith, and we will open the gates and let you in. Because as the Apostle teaches in this chapter, only those who are able to discern the Lord's body may come. Little children are baptized without discerning, but when it comes to the Lord's Supper, they must discern, they must be able to discern. God first gives them that faith. But the elders must not admit to the table those who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly. Unbelieving. Those who declare themselves to be unbelieving are those who speak, who say, who make it known to others in the church they don't believe. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in Jesus. Maybe it's so terrible that they say, they make it known, they don't even believe at all, anything. But it might just be that they make known they don't believe that particular truth of the scriptures, that essential truth. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, according to Genesis. They don't believe the total depravity of man by nature. They don't believe that they are truly sinners by by nature. They don't believe the commandments of God are binding upon us in the world today. They believe in moral relativity. They believe in the goodness of man. They believe in universal salvation. When they make known those false heretical beliefs, the elders must exclude them from the Lord's Supper because they declare themselves by their confession of heresies to be unbelieving. And also, those who declare themselves to be ungodly as the Lord's Supper form says, those who are defiled with the following sins, and it gives that long catalog of sins, idolatry, superstition, enchantment, witchcraft, blasphemy, despising God and despising his words and despising the sacraments and raising discord and sects and schism and mutiny in the church or the state, revolutionaries, rebels, those who are given to all kinds of murder, whether the act of murder or bullying, or abuse, or killing words, all kinds of sexual immorality, of which they are not repentant, drunkenness, of which they are not repentant, stealing, cheating, and all who lead offensive lives. As long as they continue in such sins without repentance, they must not be allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. As you well know, there are many congregations who practice open communion. They don't fence the table. They keep the gates open for anyone to come. The Catechism teaches us that's not right because in that way, 
They allow impenitent, unbelieving people to come to the supper and with their profane hands to take the sacred bread and wine. Now that's our final point this morning. Why is it so important to exclude and to warn unbelievers? First of all, it's important to warn unbelievers because if someone is a hypocrite or if someone is not sincerely turning to the Lord and they come to the table, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. That's what the apostle says. If you eat and drink unworthily, you might be elect. But if you eat and drink unworthily in that particular moment of your life, you bring down upon yourself the judgment of God, even though you are elect. What does that mean? It means you bring down upon yourself the anger of your heavenly Father. He'll be angry with you. Your God who loves you will be angry with you. So don't come. Rather, repent. Turn from your sin. But if you are not elect, the same warning comes, but it's a much stronger warning. And that warning is, don't come, because then you eat and drink damnation to yourself. The apostle says you become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You're already guilty of all your other sins, but now you seize the bread and wine and you add to your guilt, this guilt, that you have profaned the sacred body and blood of Christ, trampling it under your feet. Jesus speaks about those when he says that it will be worse for them in the day of judgment, or, for example, Capernaum and Bethsaida, than for Sodom and Gomorrah, that city of homosexuals, who never heard the gospel. It'll be worse for those who have heard the gospel and trampled under their feet the blood of Christ than for those who never heard. But in the second place, it's important that the elders exclude those who are openly impenitent. The Catechism says, otherwise, the covenant of God will be profaned and the wrath of God will be kindled against the whole congregation. See, if we just keep those gates open and the elders don't pay any attention and anybody who comes into the church is able to go right up to the table and eat and drink, the apostle teaches us when he says, you eat and drink judgment, catechism now says, yes, that judgment will come on the whole congregation. Remember, what is one of the marks of the true church? The proper administration of the sacraments. As soon as the church improperly is administering the sacraments, and that's one of the improper things, the doors are just left open, anybody is welcome to come, that church begins to apostatize. That doesn't mean everybody in that church is going to hell, but it means that church, as a church, is beginning to fall away. It's losing one of the marks of the true church. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. It's an exclusive meal. It's a supper of God and his children. Just think of your families when you gather around the supper table. Yes, sometimes we invite other people to our supper. But that supper is a private fellowship meal of father and mother and children. And that's the Lord's Supper too. God, our Father, is having a supper with us. And that's the covenant. Fellowship with our God around the table.
So let us now come to the table. God bids us to come. Come, my children, come. I will feed your hungry and thirsty souls. And you will experience a foretaste of eternal fellowship in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word. Bind it upon our hearts. Apply it to our souls. And now 